Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. Steve Heilig, welcome to the New School. Nice to be back. <laughs> Steve, you are a healthcare ethicist, an editor, an epidemiologist, an environmentalist, and an ethnomusicologist with strong roots in Bolinas. You were trained in public health, economics, and biology at five UC campuses, and you've worked with nonprofits, hospitals, and in biotechnology. You've written more than 500 articles uh, on a wide range of issues uh, with a particular interest in reproductive health and rights, death and dying, environmental science and policy, and addiction medicine. You are the co-editor of the Cambridge Quarterly of Health Ethics, and you're affiliated with San Francisco Medical Society, where you play a senior role with California Pacific Medical Center and with Commonweal. And at Commonweal, you're both a senior advisor to our whole community, but also play a very senior role in the collaborative on health and the environment, which is our global uh, network of 5,000 partners around the world uh, interested in health and environmental sciences. Finally, uh, you're a widely published music journalist and author of fiction, poetry, and literary criticism, a Huffington Post blogger, and a longtime, sometimes editor of the Bolinas Hearsay News. So that just gives us a sense of the, the range of your interests. But I was asking you before we started if I could mention that, that since people who will hear the podcast and may not know you and don't know you visually, uh, most of the time, you're a little dressed up today, you have a jacket on, but most of the time, you look like you just strolled in off the beach and look like you probably hadn't done a lick of work in the last 10 years and <laughs> look like one of the most, one of the 10 most laid back people in this very laid back community. <laughs> so, so there's just such an interesting contrast between this sort of, dare I say, sort of beach bum, you know, uh, affect that you carry and this enormously productive, uh, discerning, uh, professional life that you lead. How, I, how? I take all that as a compliment. <laughs> and, and I should say right up front that the fine uh, camel hair jacket came from the free box this morning at the insistence of my hearsay uh, co-editor and wardrobe consultant, Stuart Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> so how did this all start? Where did you grow up? Well, I was actually going to start with how you and I met. And okay. Then, then we'll get into that. All How's right. that? Just why I'm sitting here at, at Commonweal, actually, because I'd been around here a bunch and sneaking in uh, and even sleeping out on the cliff to go down to uh, mm -hmm. you know, the waves down there below or, and mm -hmm. so forth. But I had started just uh, about 1990, I started writing book reviews for the San Francisco Chronicle. And like a few things, I started that kind of just by some sort of... Uh, delusion or audacity, I sent them in a book review without even being asked. And it was actually about a book of surf slang. It was a dictionary of really silly words. And um, 
it was pretty good, and it was by a local author, at least in San Francisco. So she actually took it, Pat Holt, who was then the editor for years. And, and from then on, I was able to do book reviews. And every time I'd get into an argument with her about something, I remember doing a bi reviewing a biography of Indira Gandhi, a wonderful big book, and we got into a debate about a particular word, and her trump card was always, Steve, Indira did not surf. So, so she would use that forever. But uh, books would come in once you start, you know, publishers and, and uh, so forth get word that you're a critic, they start sending you books. And one came in in 1994 called Choices in Healing by one Michael Lerner. And, uh, or the galleys come in at a time. And I thought, this is a local author as well, Marin County. And uh, I already knew who Michael was because I had seen, and we, we put this in the Commonweal newsletter just this last year, or 2012, I'd seen a photo of him in the Pacific Sun in the 1980s when I was out here, sitting on an old VW bug and doing all this great work, and I thought, this guy's really got it dialed in, you know? He's living out here, and he's got this same kind of car I do, and, <laughs> and he's doing all this great work. So she agreed to let me review this book, and it's a, you know, I'm sure many of you know about it, it's a it really filled a need in terms of evaluating uh, the best of conventional and complementary approaches to cancer. So my experience with reviewing books in many people's is that you only hear from an author if you've pissed them off. And, you know, if you give the greatest review to anybody you'd never hear, and I think this came out on the Sunday Chronicle and Monday morning I was in my office and the phone rang and is that Steve? Yes, this is Michael Lear. And I went, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> and he said, no, i just calling to thank you for the review. I thought, wow, that's cool. And he said, do you ever come to Bolinas? And I said, well, actually, I panhandle you in front of the library pretty much every day, and you never give me anything. <laughs> and he said, we have to meet. So why don't you come out, and we'll go for a walk. And I have subsequently learned, as some others here know, that if you go for a walk with Michael Lerner, you usually end up doing some new work. You have a, end up with a new job. And so we started working together. And so that's how I ended up in the role that Commonweal has evolved over time. But uh, there were early uh, projects in environmental health and antibiotics and things like that that we worked on. So long before that, I mean, some of you saw the poster. Uh, Kira asked me for a picture that wasn't my usual dumb mugshot, and I found the high school graduation one, which was kind of interesting uh, because, you know, this is now uh, one of my friends. Dave is here from high school, and uh, he was a year ahead of me, but my 40-year reunion is coming up. So 40 years ago, it was a long time ago when that was. It's kind of a f fuzzy memory, and I remember that hideous... Uh, blue striped jacket I had on, we had taken that out of one of our dad's closet and passed it on. So there's like 10 guys in that yearbook with that same jacket on. And, I, and the tie, the blue tie that I put on the Hawaiian shirt, you know. But it was, uh, this was uh, early 70s in Orange County, behind the Orange Curtain, as they say. Um, a very, uh, very conservative area. And we grew up in, in Corona Del Mar, which is kind of the southern end of Newport Beach which was an idyllic, almost, almost, not quite, but almost Bolinas-type uh, geographic setting, surrounded by fields and then the ocean. And long stretches of undeveloped, beautiful ocean that look a lot like right down here at RCAs. And so I often say, I'll tell people, uh, I wouldn't trade where and when I grew up for anywhere, but it really depresses me now because it was the decade coming of just vast development and uh, real changes there. 
but I was, without being in the military, I was something of a military brat. And I found this other picture, which is why I put this up here just last night. We can pass this around if you want to see. This was my dad's idea of how to um, raise and dress a kid, which was with full army for fatigues and a Tommy gun, you know? And it's really, you know, he was a, uh, basically an arms merchant. Uh, you know, he had at one point, and that's not all he did, but he sold a lot of them. And he had at one point 4,000 employees working on. But, I mean, he was, he was a major arms, uh, global arms distributor yeah, working they, with the United States. The government. Vietnam War was on. They were making, yeah. uh, they were contracting with the military for yeah. that. It was a division of Ford, which turns out all three of the big, what was in the big three motor companies right. have a lot of this international arms consulting yeah. going on, you know. So there were times when we would have parties where there was a bodyguard. Uh, Santa one year at our house had a pistol, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and there were threats made when there was the, you know, there was a lot of opposition, obviously, to the Vietnam War. And by the time I was uh, graduating, like when that picture was, it was the last year of the registering for the draft for Vietnam. They weren't drafting anymore, but I drew a very low number at 18 years old, when you turned 18, you had to go up and register. And I remember going up to Santa Ana, which was the, uh, you know, where the uh, registry was, and looking around, and there were all these guys enlisting. Not one of them was white. And, and there I was with my friend Tom, and we were both the two white kids, surfer kids, and we were talking to some of these mostly Hispanic kids and some black kids, saying, what are you doing? And they're telling us, there's nothing else to do basically, and we'll, we'll get a job out of this. And it was a kind of a dose of reality for some kids who grew up in this very sheltered, affluent beach community. So what, so you came to sort of social consciousness during the Vietnam War. What was it like for you as you discovered your own social orientation and your father's work? What was that conjunction like for you? We didn't talk about it much in my family, obviously. I have two sisters and, and myself. And uh, I've wondered, on the drafting still, I wondered if I had been drafted, if my dad would have pulled strings to keep me out or not. Mm -hmm. We never talked about mm -hmm. it. He died about 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. It was interesting because I remember being in the high school quad one time and a, a good friend of mine who I had met I only knew him then, named Charlie, and I met him because he had a dead, Grateful Dead t-shirt on. And mm -hmm. We connected, you know, so in the quad. But, he, you know, like, what is your, he asked me, what does your dad do? And I go, oh, he runs that big place up on the hill. And he said, oh, my dad's a minister. And I said, really? And he goes, and he gave a sermon last Monday about what an evil place that is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, wow, I didn't know this was going on What like was that. the place on the hill? It was the Ford Era Neutronic. It was the, the, you know, they did a lot. That's what the place where all the... Uh, so he ran that? Yeah, 4,000 employees. So Ford Aeroneutronic. Yeah. And so in addition to armaments, what else did they do? They did a lot of electronic, a lot of, uh, you know, some, it was also military, a lot of the electronics, uh -huh. I believe, you know, sonar and radar and surveillance. And what was his background? Where did he come from? He was an engineer from Minnesota and Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, had a whole slew of degrees by the time he was in his early 20s and about 20 patents on all sorts of things. And he was a big guy and a very intimidating man, you mm -hmm. know, but he wasn't around a lot. He traveled the world a mm -hmm. lot to do this mm -hmm. work. Um, but I think that re really, in some ways, saved me, you know, 
it was too late for the 60s, but there was a, a kind of a movement down there. We had Laguna Beach, the next town to the south, and Laguna Beach was always kind of an art colony that happened, and it had its own big summer of love just a couple years after it happened up here in San Francisco. So I can remember being on the beach down there and seeing a guy riding a camel down the beach, throwing out little postcards that had orange sunshine acid on them and taped on there. Tim Leary lived in town. There was a group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which turned out to be the biggest acid ring in the United States history. And this was happening in Orange County. And it was eventually, and somewhat quickly, shut down by the authorities. And it became like being you know, of color in the South, where if you had long hair and you walk across the street, they'd bust you. And they actually, there was an arson fire that burned down their kind of headquarters that everybody kind of assumed the police had done. But I think what really brought me is, you know, when what saved me from a lot of the, the fate that a lot of people I grew up with, either good or bad, a lot of people were successful, but in, they were bankers and lawyers and things I was not interested in. And then there were a lot of people who really spiraled down through various kinds of addictions. And Drug uses. And yeah, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But reading, reading is what saved me. And, and I was a uh, really dedicated reader of, you know, Tolkien and stuff from a very young age to the point where teachers would be always taking books out of my hands and putting them in boxes and at the end of the year giving a whole box of you know, Lord of the Rings and Richard Brodigan and the things that were, were big and Jack Kerouac. And so I read these young and there was actually a little bookstore in Laguna. I would ride my bike down to Laguna and there was a, an older couple that had a bookstore right on the, the highway. And they were very inspiring people because they had actually spearheaded the Laguna Greenbelt, which was, as with Marin, had, had saved the land from development. And, you know, I don't think they were that used to kids coming in and buying little paperbacks for a dollar because every time I'd go in and buy something, they'd give me another one mm -hmm. and say, if you like that, take this too and read it. So, I mean, it was a wonderful thing. And, uh, I mean, there was a bookstore across the street, to tell you, it was like called 450, Fahrenheit 451, you know, the Bradbury. That's where you went in if you wanted to get acid in a bag of pot with your book, you know. But these guys, and it was the hippie, the hippie bookstore, and these, these, this whole couple were really great. And so I think reading, you know, it became very important to me, and I, I carried that through high school. I remember being at the beach, I'd bring a book after school, we'd be out in the water, my friends would go, what did you bring a book for? And, you know, rather than just sit around and talk, I was always reading. And it, so it gave me a, it just opened up the world to me in a lot of ways that I think a lot of people didn't do then. And I kept doing that. And I can remember, so there's even some little epiphanies. I can remember reading Walden in one sitting, reading Thoreau, and getting to the end, and probably 17, 18, you know, sitting on the bluff above the beach and getting to the end, and it says, the sun is but a morning star. And I can remember that shutting that book and saying, I don't know what that means, but I'm, I'm in awe of this book and all of the messages in it about non-materialism and nature and all of that. And another one I remember, it was actually on my friend Dave's hammock up in Sebastopol. So this would have been freshman year of college, I think. I had hitchhiked there. And I picked up just randomly uh, Suzuki's Zen Mind's Beginner's Mind. And again, sitting in the hammock and having was basically almost a hallucinogenic experience, being totally straight, but reading this book and thinking, wow, this is huge, you know, it opens up this vastness. So, and one more, I remember being uh, a year or so later, being in bed in Santa Barbara as an undergraduate with my girlfriend. She's trying to go to sleep. I've got the light on, I'm reading, and she finally reaches her and goes, will you turn the light, what are you reading? She said, Origin of the Species by Darwin, what a geek. <laughs> 
go to bed, go to sleep. <laughs> so, you know, one, of, one time here a couple years ago, Rachel Remen, one of our great uh, Commonweal people, asked the question at a, uh, just a casual meeting, I think. She's developing a, a theory that almost anybody who, got de who de ends up devoting themselves to, for lack of a better term, saving the world, and whatever reason, environmentalism or whatever it is, had some sort of experience in their early years. And I think she, her, she was saying like between like five and 12 or something, you know, or even before adolescence. And she asked everybody, can you think of this? Because the people here at Commonweal are, are in that category overall. Mm -hmm. And actually something I hadn't thought of jumped to mind. And, you know, as I mentioned, we had fields around uh, the village where we grew up above the beach. And I had a frog pond there probably the size of this room that was fairly deep and it was filled with tadpoles all the time. And I used to scoop them up in jars and bring them home and put them in a wheelbarrow and watch them hatch into frogs until my dad made me stop because it was so loud in the back with all the croaking, you know, and he said, cool it with the tadpoles, right? But I went out there one time and there was a kid about my age who I didn't know and size and he was sitting there on the rocks and he was pulling the frogs up and smashing them with rocks. And it was this big mess. And I had, I can count the, my incidents of violence on one hand in my life, but I stood him up, I punched him in the face and pushed him back into the pond, you know? And Rachel, when I told this to Rachel there, she said, well, early eco-terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, you know, my dad, to his credit, you know, the thing I've said about him, which is questionable, but he was a very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, outdoorsman, and he taught me to fish and to shoot. I'm an NRI certified junior marksman, right? Mm. Never shot since, but um, the phone rang that night, and it was whoever this kid's dad. He said, knew they knew who I was, and you know, and I, was, I, I didn't know that, but then I hear my dad say, "Steve, will you come out here?" And I go, "Oh God!" And I go out, and he said, "Did you punch so and so, whoever is it?" I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "Why did you do that?" And I told him, and he. He was trying really hard. He said, don't do it again. He turned around, he burst out laughing. <laughs> so, so it was almost positive reinforcement because my dad was, I was you know, otherwise kind of intimidated by him, but I could tell he was proud of that, actually. So in, in terms of reading, too, you go back. So in high school, I read this famous book, Howl, right? Allen Ginsberg. Of course, I don't understand a lot what is going on here, but... When you're a kid, you can make big things or any age of things. So the second poem in here is called America. And the first lines, two lines are, America, I've given you all and now I'm nothing. America, $2.27, January 17, 1956. January 17, 1956 is the day I was born. My mom that day was trying to have a baby. My poor little mother and I had a big giant head cesarean. <laughs> and I thought, this is a message. I don't know what it is, but it's a message. <laughs> and there was also, I remember, uh, there was a, a, one of our friends, up, right up the street from me was a friend named Jeff Rowland. And his father was a guy named Sherwin Rowland. And Sherwin Rowland was a chemist, professor of chemistry at UC Irvine, which was the closest college. And this guy was studying, this is early 70s, he was studying the effect of aerosols CFCs, chemicals on the ozone layer. And the famous story is that he came home one night and, and his wife asked him, how was work today, honey? And he said, it's going very well. Unfortunately, it means the end of the world. <laughs> and he actually had discovered this, the ozone hole 
He later got the Nobel Prize for this with his colleague, um, Mario Molina. But I remember going up to his house and sitting occasionally. Jeff Rowland uh, was our friend, and he, his dad was a 6'6", six, six, I believe, very tall, thin guy, but talking to us about, about these things. I go, you know, and he was a guy who, a scientist, obviously very uh, accomplished, who then took his scientific knowledge and turned it into, you know, he, he made speeches later, like his Nobel acceptance speech was, you can't just learn this stuff and let it sit. You've got to do something if you know that. You have a responsibility. So here was a engaged, a socially engaged scientist. And that actually is a record that that particular um, discovery has it set a record for the quickest time between the discovery of a threat and policy, which changed it, an international treaty. It was only about a dozen years, and that just doesn't happen. You know? Right. But the... Uh, the threat was recognized, and there was a treaty to phase out those. The Montreal ozone. Yes, and that was due to this guy. And I just, I just remember that, you know. And he was a very kind guy. But there, you might have seen it. There was a op-ed in the New York Times just this Sunday saying the same thing about climate. Mm -hmm. Basically, scientists have to do something. You mentioned our interest in antibiotics, and I remember a lunch with uh, uh, Dick Jackson and Phil Lee. Dick Jackson, who was later head of the Centers for Disease Control Environmental Health Lab and is one of the leading environmental health scientists, uh, pediatricians in the country. And Dr. Phil Lee, who really was a mentor for both of us, who was chancellor of UCSF. And, um, and Dick, um, Dick said to me and Phil that he thought that the issue of the overuse of antibiotics in animal confined animal feeding operations was going to make antibiotics, uh, you know, ineffective in humans and that there was a huge need to do something about this. And so uh, this turned out to be something you had already worked on, isn't that correct? Mm -hmm. And so we got together and with others, actually Catherine Porter is in the yeah, room here right. and we created uh, the... Um, the Keep Antibiotics Working campaign, and Catherine led the Funders Forum for Antibiotic Resistance, and um, and uh, we have how many years ago did that happen, Catherine? It's uh, twelve years, yeah. Twelve years, and number one, it turned out to be true, and it's a huge. What is the number of people who die annually from antibiotic resistance? <laughs> Uh, thinks it's a huge number. It's in the hundreds of thousands. It's, I think, on the same order as the number of people who die in automobile accidents. It's a huge number. Uh, it's a huge number, and it keeps getting worse, and the federal government has begun to pass the laws on it. So that, that's another instance. You said it was 12 years from discovery... Yeah, we still have a long way to go, yeah, too, but had, it's, uh, there's right. now some movement. And th right. So this does go way back, obviously. Yeah. When antibiotics were discovered, Fleming, right. who discovered penicillin, I mean, he warned within a year, if we overuse these and blow it, the bugs right. are going to outrace them. Right. And when I was casting around for a biology uh, thesis to do as an undergrad right. for my advisor, who was a very famous ecologist, Garrett Harton, right. population ecologist, right. um, I proposed something on his, his famous paper is a tragedy of the commons, which basically just says if you let everybody use a resource without constraints, the whole thing will collapse. Um, and if there aren't, isn't some management. So I wrote a 
thesis, which was basically antibiotics as a commons, that there had to be some kind of regulation. And it was focused as much on the human side, on human medicine, as it was on the animals. But then this turned into a very big issue. And Phil Lee was one, he wrote on this early, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But again, this was something where I took, uh, I was working on that paper, and I wrote Phil Lee a letter at Stanford, uh, and never expecting to hear back, and he wrote me a long letter back with all this mm -hmm. input. And I thought, this is cool. This guy, he was Secretary of Health of the United States, and chancellor, and uh, we ended up becoming, as you say, friends and, and mm. a real mentor there. And uh, we you know, the reports came out eventually that much more antibiotics are used in farms than are on people, and uh, I wrote a policy, you draft policies through local medical associations, since it's the one I work for, and if they're adopted there, you can take them up to a higher level. So I drafted a policy that this needed to be looked at and curtailed that went all the way through and was adopted by the AMA. And uh, that was one that you know was big news when the AMA came out with this statement on that because people didn't really know about it. And through the work that you mentioned, we've uh, had some headway. You know, it's, it's always been a very difficult thing because there's a lot of money involved in this and keeping the status quo, keeping all those drugs out there. And on farms, they aren't even used overall to cure disease. They're used as growth stimulants. They actually, for reasons that nobody's ever quite figured out yet, make the animals grow faster so they can get them to market sooner. But this, I just want to spend a minute on this because there's the famous quote from Irving Selikoff, who was the head of environmental medicine at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And I forget who had the conversation with him, but you may remember, Steve, but there's a famous quote where Selikoff said uh, that the statistics on these things are, um, are something like, are, are people with the tears wiped away? In other words, you read the statistics, mm -hmm. and what you really have, it's, it's people with the tears wiped away. And I mean, I don't know how many of you in this room have had the experience of knowing and loving someone where it is absolutely touch and go as to whether they're gonna stay alive because the antibiotics aren't working. But it's a really big, big deal. And in the cancer field, it is a huge deal because people have compromised immune systems and all that stuff, and they get these infections, and then all of a sudden the antibiotics aren't working anymore. And, you know, and this, this has been just a huge threat, and it's extremely difficult to invent new ones and so on. So, it's really the, this piece, which both of us worked on together, you wrote your dissertation on, Catherine Porter worked with us on it. We really had a, a really uh, effective uh, campaign that uh, continues to this day. Um, but it is an example of the kind of environmental public health issue which you have worked on repeatedly throughout your career, right? In other words, if we make a list, uh, you've worked on HIV AIDS, you've worked on antibiotics, uh, medical ethics, reproductive health, um, uh, a whole series of these things uh, involve these public health issues. Well, yes, and a lot of it is, uh, is what somebody called happy accident in a way in terms right. of how they come about. Uh, the way... I felt I've been able to have an impact on a lot of these is because I work with and for what's called organized medicine. So the Medical Society in San Francisco, I never would have envisioned ending up there. It's a voluntary association of, of doctors. It goes back actually to gold rush years. Right. Uh, but 
it's independent, but part of the whole network that includes then CMA, California, and AMA. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to work. California Medical California Association. California Medical Association. And the yeah. American Medical Association. And I wound up there by chance. After yeah. the undergraduate uh, work, I, like many people uh, at that age, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I eliminated things, you know, law school, et cetera. I wound up in public health. It seemed to make sense. And I uh, went to UCLA for that. It's a very rigorous professional school kind of thing. You come out with a Master of Public Health, MPH. I say it stands for trying at least to make people happy. <laughs> so, but I traveled around a bit after that. I had the great fortune of working uh, for a great guy who just died a few couple months ago, William Glasser, a famous psychiatrist, he pioneered something called reality therapy. And he, I met him out in front of his uh, office one day when I was looking for a bathroom. and. Uh, we and you know you're a graduate student there, so I ended up working. So I was able to finish school with some money, and I traveled around, and I came back, and uh, was going to uh, do some more study at Berkeley, but really didn't know what I was going to do. And so this is 1983 or four. Uh, I was sleeping on Dave's couch in the hate, looking for a job to at least figure out what to do next. And so at that date in San Francisco, what was happening? There was an epidemic exploding. Right? And didn't even have a name yet. Um, and the city was in this state of chaos about it. Uh, what are we going to do? So the mayor said, at that point was Feinstein, said, you got to form a commission of uh, whoever you think is great, 20-something people, and uh, let's see how we should deal with this on various levels. So that, that group was founded all sorts of physicians and scientists and some political people, and it was a triumvirate of the UCSF Medical Center, the Department of Public Health, and the Medical Society, and they needed somebody to basically be the staff to it, and this was supposed to last for starting a, a year, uh, or maybe a few, until we sorted that out and took care of this problem, which, of course, did not happen, but I, I did get that job, uh, and thinking that I'd be there for a while, and you know, so here it is, however, 30 years later, I'm still working with this organization. But that was my baptism by fire. And just so that the epidemic yeah. was the HIV, HIV epidemic. Yes. Right. You're listening to a conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. And so you found exactly. yourself at the epicenter of yeah. the public health response in San Francisco right. to the... 84 to the uh, yeah. AIDS epidemic. So let's just hold that for a second. What was that experience like for you? Well, I was very green about it. And uh, I can remember one of, you know, the Medical Society owned the blood bank at that point, And we had our meetings there in a big room. And I remember uh, protesters out front having die-ins. And I remember esteemed physicians breaking down and crying in these meetings because of what was happening not only with their patients but among their friends and colleagues in San Francisco. And we were confronted with a whole list of issues, you know, what to do about the blood bank itself, which was then at that point for a brief time transmitting HIV because they didn't know it was in the blood that was donated. What do we do? We've got a test coming up. Once it was identified, HTLV3 it was called at that point. A test is developed pretty quickly, kind of amazingly, and it was by people in San Francisco. But what do you do when you don't have any treatment? How do you set up a treatment, uh, I mean, a care network of what was basically hospice care for people who were dying? There had been a statement by a very famous infectious disease uh, expert just 
a decade before that said, the age of infectious diseases is ended and it's the greatest accomplishment of mm. humankind. Mm. Wrong, you know? And I, personally, you know, so there were, and uh, there were other, there were, there was uh, issues of the, what to do about the bathhouses, what to do, you know, with all the people who are transmitting with uh, needles. Um, and so here I was, this surfer boy from, you know, Orange County. Now, you know, surf culture, at least in Southern California, is a very kind of, you know, macho and at least on the surface homophobic culture. You know, you, you just, that's what you talk about. It's, and here I was in the middle of this world and I met so many people and I remember about five years into it, the uh, American Association for Gay Physicians, which was then called American Association of Physicians for Human Rights, has since been changed to GLAMA, the Gay and Lesbian American Medical Association. They gave me their annual award for contributions to public health. And I was in a room, some hotel downtown, and uh, there were like 500 people there, mostly all men. and. Uh, <laughs> they got into this thing about speculation, speculating, is he or isn't he? <laughs> and I thought, I don't know if I, is, I'm not sure if my, is my uh, dad would like this or not. I don't know, you know, I mean, it was a very, and it was all in great, you know, Donald Abrams was one of them. These people who ended up becoming good, good friends and Donald colleagues. Donald Abrams being the head yes. of oncology at yes. San Francisco General. One of the General, pioneers in AIDS An research. extraordinary yeah. pioneer of AIDS treatment and a, a good friend. I wound up on the board of the AIDS Foundation debating a lot of these issues. I actually, uh, the issue of the needle transmission, you know, this concept came up through a, a small group of uh, activists of doing needle exchange, you know, of actually providing syringes to interrupt the transmission. Totally illegal at that point mm -hmm. and disapproved of by a lot of people, including people I really liked and knew, such as uh, Dave Smith, who's the founder of the Hate Clinic and one of my mentors. And I remember going through long discussions on this and trying to figure out how to, if this was a good idea or not, was it gonna contribute? You know, the addiction people obviously were gonna think, no, this is enabling drug abuse, right? But the whole concept that came up with this is harm reduction, is that if you have a behavior that, you, that is unhealthy, but you also recognize you can't stop it by law or enforcement or something like that, or even education, what do you do to make it less harmful? And uh, people would say that that's true for, say, uh, legalization of abortion or something like that too, you know? People don't like it, but they, if they're smart, they realize you're not gonna stop it by law, you're gonna make it worse by outlawing it. Other kinds of drug abuse. So same thing, wrote a policy, went through CMA, AMA, people thought it was crazy, but eventually that, it, AMA had that legalized in uh, the states if you do it through the health departments. And Dave Smith, to his great credit, pioneer in addiction medicine, saw that it was actually a way to get people in touch with drug treatment as well. So you were actually getting reach where, where addicts could trust you, that you were trying to help them and then in, as a byproduct, you might also be able to help them with the addiction problem itself. But this, you know, that... Um, I mean, I would imagine that that was a life-transformative experience to yes. do that. Yeah. No, so, I mean, there were so many... Uh, I was immersed in this for about the first five years I was in San Francisco. So how, how did it change you? Well, I was confronted, you know, at the beginning, I was confronting mortality all the time. Right. Because we'd go down, I actually volunteered, worked in the hospitals there at San Francisco General. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the first real confrontation with that is, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and to see 
also the dedication of clinicians who worked in these places. Mm -hmm. And in the very beginning, they did not know if they were at risk as well. You know, there was the question of whether it was aerosolized through coughing, if, you know, surgeons were going to get it through working. And with very few exceptions, and there were a couple of very public exceptions, nobody turned away from that, you know, in San Francisco. It did happen, but most of the people would say, this is what we signed up for, and we're going to do it. And that entailed great um, integrity, but also emotional commitment, because people got very close to these patients. Um, and we had a whole, the AIDS Foundation, what we had set up were volunteer programs for both in hospital care, where volunteers came in to help take care of people, and at home. And so I did the home, I would go into people's houses, and you deliver food, you would do massages. And is, is there one person that you remember with particular clarity that really reached you? Yeah, well, so what happened is uh, there was a fellow who we've had here speak, Frank Ostaseski, mm. who was a founder through the, he was uh, at the Zen Center and he founded the Zen Hospice Project. And it was originally founded as a basically an HIV hospice. Uh, it's evolved now, you know. But at that point, almost all the patients there. And I was actually walking down the street one day in the city, you know, oblivious, and I got hit by a big delivery truck right behind. And it knocked me out and threw me across the street. Fortunately, didn't hit my head for some lucky reason, but the guy on the corner store called up and said, there's a dead body out front, come and get it. And uh, I, was, I was knocked out briefly, but then I was okay, and I took some time out after that. When I got back to my office a few, you know, within a week or so, there was an invitation from Frank saying, you know, we've met, I think you should, be, you should come and work at Zen Hospice too. And you had to go through a very, he was still leading it then, it was one of his last years, he retired from that and does other work now. But um, I went through their training and I became a hospice volunteer through Zen Hospice. And it's, you know, I was at, they run the big hospice unit up at Laguna Honda, which is the big long-term care facility in San Francisco. And they have a Victorian downtown for only six beds, a smaller one. And I remember a guy, um, in, that I've always remembered him very much because he was very difficult and nobody wanted to deal with him. He was very demanding and uh, uh, a drama queen, you know, and he was always get, causing trouble and he was, you know, wasting away and getting small. So I remember carrying him down the stairs so he could smoke pot in the backyard for his nausea and everything. And, and I would just give him the same grief back that he would give to me. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a funny relationship. It was very, you know, with him, it was very flirty and I would just deflect him and have fun. And he then was coming right to the end of his uh, life. And what often, or, or does happen anyway, is people will fade out, and he was fading out for sure. We could prop him up, he could sit up for a bit. But sometimes this mysterious thing happens where people have a moment of lucidity right before they actually die. Mm -hmm. They come back for a minute. And for whatever, you know, however it happened, I was, it was on my shift, and you had volunteer shifts uh, once a week. And I was there one night, and I'd actually taken him off the bed and put him on the couch, and I was sitting there reading Darwin or something, and uh, he was leaning against me out, you know, and he hadn't said a word probably in, you know, days or something like that. And all of a sudden I realized that he was awake. And, I, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he said, hey, I thought it was you. I said, yeah, I'm here. And he said, before I go, thank you for the respect. And he closed his eyes. And, you know, I eventually went back to bed and I left that night, I think at end of shift at midnight, and then in the morning got the call that he had died that night. Mm. 
That's beautiful. So from HIV work, and we've talked about antibiotics a bit, uh, you've done a lot of work in, in addiction and drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little about that. Well, another one of the people that I really admired when I showed up in San Francisco and I'd heard of was Dave Smith, who I mentioned. Now, Dave Smith was a doctor, was a medical student in the 60s at UCSF when the hate was exploding in the summer of love. And when he came out, 1966, and it was just happening, and he had been doing toxicology work in mice down at San Francisco General. And he's a, he was a Bakersfield boy who, uh, you know, was very, dug the city, but thought he'd probably go back and be a family doc in the mm -hmm. valley somewhere. But all these people were coming, and the word was that 100,000 people were going to show up, and it was going to be, if you're going to San Francisco, flowers in your hair and all that. What he was seeing, though, was that the local hospitals and doctors were turning away kids who were showing up that had infections and had all kinds of whatever their problems were. And uh, he founded the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. He uh, found an old dentist's office on Haight Street, right on the corner, and leased it for a little bit of money and set up a clinic. And uh, it became the locus where everybody went. And of course, a lot of the problems they were dealing with were drugs, drug problems. And out of that clinic became, became a national movement for free clinics and also came really the kind of a big part of the birth of the actual specialty of addiction medicine, which didn't exist. And so addiction, you know, I wrote a policy again sometime back in the 90s working with Dave, Dave Smith, declaring, you know, in, in terms of numbers, in terms of the number of people affected by addiction. And by addiction, I mean the number one, one and two are, guess what, the legal ones, tobacco and alcohol, right? Um, but if you add up all the people affected and how much it costs and all the suffering, it's the biggest public health problem in America. Now, obesity may be overtaking that now, but we don't know yet. So the AMA actually declared that and, and agreed that there should be actually a, an approved specialty in addiction medicine, which took a decade or so, but it actually happened, and Dave was eventually president of that. Um, so, you know, the early experience, like I already mentioned, the needle exchange with that, the idea that uh, we might actually have a smarter approach to cannabis which, in terms of legalizing it or decriminalizing it, regulating it, came out of my, some of my discussions with Dave and with Donald Abrams and people like that. And just two years ago, we actually published a policy through the California Medical Association which endorsed it saying cannabis should be legal, should be decriminalized and taxed. And that was adopted unanimously by the CMA Board of Directors, which is you know, not a radical group. It's docs from all over the uh, state. And this was front page news in the LA Times and the New York Times and everything. And now we're seeing how this comes out. Even before that, 15 years ago now, 16 years ago, Prop 215 was proposed, which was the uh, legalization of medical cannabis, right? And the, the story on that that I remember the most is, you know, so this was proposed as big news. It's going to be the first state that this is voted on. And the drug czar was so concerned about this, and it was at that point, as they often were, a general. General McCaffrey was his name. Um, he came out to San Francisco, to the Medical Society, at his request, special meeting, to tell us how to fight this and how to oppose it. Mm -hmm. And he was so authoritarian and so demanding, and you don't do that with a bunch of senior doctors, that when we listened to him and excused him from the room, I said, should we talk now or should we have a vote? 100% endorsement of the <laughs> Proposition 215. We were the only medical society in the state to do this. Now we can get into much more about how that's panned out, 
we still think it's a good idea, but the way it's panned out with a lot of corruption and profiteering that we're not so in favor of. Now, if I took the same vote, I don't think I could get that with our group, even the way it's turned out. But, you know, that's as it is. Um, you, just for a moment, one of the things that you have done repeatedly is to take these pioneering public health issues with this very pro uh, progressive, in a certain sense, San Francisco medical it's relative, society. yeah, I call us the moderate fringe. The yeah. moderate fringe. <laughs> and, and then you write up, you, Steve Heilig, write up or draft or help others write up the policy statement which San Francisco Medical Society endorses. You take it to the California Medical Association, they endorse it. Then it, it often goes to the American Medical Association. So in the years that we've worked together, I don't know, you've done how many of these things? I don't know. <laughs> but on the order of dozens. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we, we've done a number through the environmental health, you know, right. with the collaborative right. on endocrine disruption, for example, right. exactly. chemicals needing to be more regulated. But I mean, like in that. terms of these cycles that we've been talking about, about these 10, 15, 20 year cycles from the identification of an issue to uh, you know, really effective movement, public health movement on it. Uh, the role of uh, policy positions by the American Medical Association is a very significant role. Mm -hmm. And with remarkable frequency, the San Francisco Medical Society has played a significant role in identifying these, framing them, passing them to the California Medical Association, onto the American Medical Association. And again, you've been right at the epicenter of that process. Just as a note. Well, see, this was, so learning, this is one of the political lessons of that came out of the HIV uh, experience there too, was that having, you know, I would often think, so there's a group like ACT UP would be there demonstrating in the streets at the International AIDS Conferences, which I went to for years. And they were basically saying the same thing as we were. And they served a very, you know, I realized that activism like that, street level radical activism, serves a real purpose. Because then you have a medical association saying the same thing that, that then all of a sudden appears moderate mm -hmm. and the voice of reason. Mm -hmm. And so when you're dealing with politicians, mm -hmm. um, I mean, needle exchange, I went down, my dad one time, to his credit, he was trained scientifically and I, he saw something I'd written about needle exchange and that how we now needed, we had enough evidence to support it. And uh, he, you know, being a businessman, he had uh, connections with politicians and the one, uh, I can't remember her name, but the state uh, assemblywoman who was blocking it in Sacramento was from Orange County. Mm -hmm. And I said, Pop, can you get me a meeting with her? And he said, sure, you know, come on down, we'll go to lunch. So I went down, we went to lunch at one of the waterfront places and I presented scientific papers and our policy statement, the CMA, and she sat there and said, I thought this was just a bunch of drug addicts pushing this stuff. I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm surprised and I'm impressed, so I will vote for it. And I thank you, Pop, thanks Pop, you know. I owe you a drink, you know, whatever. And uh, I went back home and then the next time the vote came up, she actually did what's called taking a walk. She disappeared so she wouldn't have to vote either way. Mm -hmm. So obviously she made the calculation that something else. So I called up my dad and I said, well, the vote came and she wasn't there. She didn't vote. And he, all he said was, it's going to cost her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and we're, <laughs> she did. She just didn't vote at all. She chickened out, you know. So this this is what happens. Of people can't. So a lot of the things we've been talking about here involve. It's perfectly obvious medical ethics, and you're the co-editor of the Cambridge Quarterly on healthcare ethics, and you have. Uh, you are also a, a bedside ethicist in the hospital system and are called on uh, when there's a challenging situation in a hospital to come in and do an ethics consult. Right. Give us an example of a ethics consult that you remember being called in on uh, in a hospital that is an example of the kind of question that you actually face in that way. Well, there's a lot. And so, you know, medical ethics as a modern discipline mm -hmm. is relatively new. It goes back to the 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. And you could even say it's almost a 60s thing, mm -hmm. like so many other things, because it was ethics were always just considered part of the practice of medicine. You took the Hippocratic Oath, and that was it. And hopefully you had, you know, you didn't have to take any more training in it. Mm -hmm. But the ethics movement came out of basically a patient empowerment. Thing. Mm -hmm. You know, medicine was looked at, American medicine in particular, as being very paternalistic. Doctor knows best, right? And there was a big movement to uh, give patients more control over their decisions and their lives and, and inform consent. And a lot of it was focused about uh, end of life through various big cases that went all the way to Supreme Court, Quinlan and various cases. And so I thought this was very interesting and uh, I was uh, over at Berkeley in the School of Public Health and, and there's a joint program between public health and medicine. And uh, I met a woman there, well I met the chair of the ethics committee at UCSF, and this is, was a relatively new rule where every hospital has to have an ethics committee, which is there to deal with both education of the clinicians, but case consultations where if there's a tough case, you can actually call members of the committee and have a consult. And I talked about this a lot in the previous, the, the full talk on end of life mm -hmm. issues, but, um, and I'm a woman named Thomasine Kushner, who was a wonderful she professor of uh, ethics over at Berkeley, and we started this journal together, and. I taught over there for some years, but it was just too difficult to do it well. It takes too much time, you know, <laughs> to be a, a real professor. But um, there is a program set up uh, through uh, California Pacific Medical Center that I, I do some work with, and I've worked with other ethics committees at UC and San Francisco in general. And you have people on call for what you say. If the clinicians are having trouble or even just uh, conflict about a case, they can call a consult. And uh, if you're on particular person on call, you go to at least assess what's going on. And if it needs a full group, you'll get like three people there. And we try to do be fairly prompt. But, you know, the majority of them, I'd say, if you're going to pick the most common one, it's actually somebody who is in an intensive care unit getting really uh, aggressive, intensive, treatment. aggressive treatment. And somebody on the team or in the family thinks, wait a minute, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. You know, why are we doing this? It doesn't look like it's going to work. Um, how do we assess that? So it would be called in to actually ask a lot of questions about what the real goals are in this particular case. What are you trying to achieve right now? What are the chances of this? What did the, do we know what the patient would have wanted if they haven't ever said so or specified mm -hmm. that? What does the family think? Often we'll have what's called a care conference with the family, with everybody in the room, and it, it's the first time they've been in the room together. They're all just coming and going on their shifts and really trying to do whatever the medical orders are. Um, and we make a recommendation. It's still the, the, the main attending physician on the case still has the power to do what they want, but um, what they think is best. 
I mean, you may have read about this case in the East Bay where the uh, tragic case where the young woman, young girl, actually died after uh, throat surgery. It wasn't just a tonsillectomy, as men reported. It was actually much more intensive surgery. But, you know, she's brain dead, and, and there is no, no chance and no incidence of anybody ever coming back. But what you've seen is a particularly aggressive attorney and others take this on and try to keep her going. Well, we actually developed policy uh, years ago it was called futility, we call it non-beneficial care, about what the process is you do if that's going on. Because, you know, as I mentioned, the movement of medical ethics has been to give patients more power, but there are limits. You can't just say, I want to be kept there forever. And, you know, we've invoked it through the years, have never been sued. You know, people, you're in these horrible, difficult uh, situation where sometimes you need somebody to step in and say, here's what we have to do and take the responsibility for it. So if you were, more broadly, to look at the field of medical ethics, what would you describe as perhaps the top three <coughs> ethical questions in medical ethics that, that the field struggles with? What, what, what's at the heart of the controversies that medical ethics faces? Well, it's pretty broad, but I mean, end of life care. You know, how, what are the limits of medicine in, in prolonging life? Right. Uh, would be one for sure. Right. Um, interestingly enough, right now, conflicts of interest. You know, mm -hmm. what uh, with pharmaceutical funding mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, you know, what are the limits of that? And so the uh, Obamacare is, is called mm -hmm. has now a sunshine element to it, where mm -hmm. there's going to be websites where you can see what any doctor has taken from any source. You know, okay, that's it's going to be very interesting. Yeah. But so that's yeah. you know, and we put a, we put a policy through just this last in October. They meet the state meeting, medical meetings every October. We put one through that no uh, hospital, no medical center should allow pharmaceutical salesmen inside the doors. Because they're all, they're crawling like rats in there, you know. They're influencing, I mean, it's astonishing what you find out. They're in, they're in operating rooms helping, helping um, decide what tools to use. You know, very expensive lasers and stuff that the hospital has been convinced to buy and then wants to use. Now, it's not to say that that's a bad laser, but is it being overused? You know, shouldn't it be just strictly on what the data is and what the mm -hmm. patient's needs are. So um, that was tough. And, you know, people stood up against it. People stood up, I get all my drug education from drug salesmen and they don't influence me. Well, you're in denial because all the science shows that it does influence you. But these debates still go on. So, mm -hmm. so that's two. And, you know, I mean, I guess I'm thinking in terms of the, you know, the frontiers of reproductive medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, what can be done in terms of fetal surgery, genetic manipulation, all of that. And that's and a broad. beautiful segue into your whole work in reproductive health, which has been a big piece of your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I was just very interested. I, I had a job as an undergraduate at the uh, student health clinic, mm -hmm. part-time. And... Uh, a very common incident, of course, was a young woman coming in very distressed that she is or might be pregnant, mm -hmm. right? And so this is in Santa Barbara, affluent area, but it was actually tough at times to find a doctor or a clinic there mm -hmm. that would help this woman out if she wanted to have an abortion, terminate mm -hmm. her pregnancy, right? It really drove it home for me. I'd heard about this. Now, back to Garrett Harden, who was my advisor. He wrote a 
piece in Scientific American in 1959 about the realities of abortion. How many there were in the country, it's totally illegal, right? How many women were maimed by illegal abortion? Mm -hmm. And just the, the embryology, here was a famous biologist. What, was, what point in development we were really at? You know, what was really being done there, given that most of these were first trimester? And at that point, you couldn't use the word abortion. They had to come up with a euphemism. It was the, even in you know, the New York Times style sheet, this was, a, this was an, a bad word, right? And uh, he became, when he wrote that paper, he became a conduit. Women started showing up at his office. I need to get, you know, so he was sending people to Mexico and all that. And uh, he became my advisor. We talked about this. So I just, you know, when I got to San Francisco, I thought this was also an important issue. And I affiliated myself with Planned Parenthood, um, which I'd already worked with in Santa Barbara as part of this network. But the thing that was most, probably the biggest contribution or memory there was I was probably 1990, 89, 90. I was reading a medical journal and I read about a new medication, a pill in Europe that had been approved in France that if used early enough on first trimester basically could produce a non-surgical termination of pregnancy. And I thought, wow, this is a huge advance. You know, if you could do this, you're avoiding surgery, it's allowing more privacy, all of that. So I thought, if this is improved in France and England was just about to approve it, shouldn't this be in America too, you know? And got together a small group of people, a couple of OBGYNs who I knew were, you know, very pro-choice and very well-respected people, and a couple of other interesting political people. And we came up with this um, scheme, it was called a stunt actually. And what we decided to do was find through these doctors a pregnant woman with an early pregnancy who did not want to be pregnant, send her on a plane to England where it would just been legalized to, get the pills, and fly her back into JFK Airport, having tipped off both all three of the big networks and the customs people, and see what happens. So she flew there, this young woman we found named Leona, and uh, picked up the pills, and we talk about jet lag, picked up the pills, flew back to New York City, and everybody bit. She came in off the plane, customs was waiting, they'd been tipped off, this woman was bringing an illegal drug into America. They arrested her and the cameras were all there. Boom, front page, every paper, an abortion pill thing. It happened to also be, not by accident, the first campaign for Bill Clinton to be president. And uh, we thought this guy was gonna, he's gonna react to this. He made a speech the next day, if elected, I will legalize this drug, right? So it was just a huge thing. Oh, and I should say, by the way, I'd done just before that an AMA policy on RU46 that this should be legal in America. They adopted it because it was just based on the science. It was safe and effective, right? And so this became a huge thing. It was front page of the papers. She came back here to San Francisco, had to go into hiding because there were reporters camped out and anti-choice people camped out all over the place. And uh, I was her screen for the media. And this was before email, right? 90, this was 92, I think, 93. And uh, I had 456 voicemails the next day, I remember. <laughs> and it was almost 486, the same as the pill, which of course became to be called RU486, you know. It was a crazy time where, you know, there was like a week of no sleep trying to manage this out. But that again, it got it into the FDA pipeline and it took seven years or something, but it became legal and became, you know, an option for American women, too. Mm -hmm. You're listening to a conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. 
before we leave the issues related to medical ethics, you know, the word ethics now is such a quaint term, you know? I mean, if you say to people, like, ethics used to be actually a field that people cared about. I mean, there's people still do professionally. But in the protean world that we live in uh, of, you know, postmodern relativism and so on and so forth, the whole idea of ethics has a quaintness about it. What I'm thinking is that medical ethics is one of the few places that I can think of where, um, where ethics has um, traction yeah. in a real world. I mean, you think about this, you know, ethics for attorneys and for businesses and for corporations and corporate ethics and responsibility. But a lot of that is greenwash or some kind of, you know, it's very abstract. Right. But there's something about medical ethics where lives are at stake and key, very personal decisions are being made, where ethics still has traction. Yeah, it's where <clears> the rubber meets the road for it's ethics, where the basically. Yeah. So my question would be, <clears throat> Ethics has a history that goes back to, you know, four or five thousand years in Judaism and and uh, Aristotle and Aristotle and so on. What are the philosophical underpinnings of modern medical ethics? In other words, does it is there a particular philosophic lineage mm -hmm. in ethics that leads to the actual? Uh, Framework which in within which medical ethics is has developed. There's a few schools, but the probably the dominant <coughs> one came out of Georgetown University. It was called the Georgetown Mantra, actually. And so, I mean, it's basically just a code of beneficence and autonomy. And it's just it's 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 what I mentioned in terms of you know the patient comes first, and the patient is has rights and has the uh, I mean elemental right of informed consent. You can't do anything to somebody without telling them exactly what it means and what the, what the implications are before that, that they have rights to terminate treatment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and some of this came out of things, you know, the Tuskegee experiment these, and the Nazi experiment where doctors ran amok, in a sense. Um, but I think it's, it's true. It's very interesting because when we first get called on a consult for a lot of the older physicians who this is a, it's something threatening to them. Why are these people being called to tell me what to do? But after they see what you can do to help them, they'll start calling you back, you know, because it's a practical thing. You know, like you say, it's, um, it's something that helps them do their job. And it was ingrained in, you know, medicine through, like I said, the Hippocratic Oath. Now, almost no physicians now take the Hippocratic Oath. Schools evolved it over time because it not only prohibited uh, abortion and euthanasia, but surgery. Did you say physicians do not take the Hippocratic No, no, very few schools. There's 120-something medical schools, and very few use it now. They use modernized versions of it that have been rewritten uh -huh. for the modern world. I, you may remember this, but our colleague Rachel Naomi Remen, one of the things she does in her Healer's Art program for medical students is she has each student write his or her own Hippocratic Oath. Yes. And there's one wonderful one that was written by an African medical student or something that says, may my hands be a mother's hands, may my heart be a mother's heart, 
may I be unto you as a mother. I mean, I don't have the whole thing by heart, but it's such a beautiful question to ask a medical student, what is, forget what people ask you to sign, what is your inner oath to this work? And her work is so important because what you find over time is that medical students are, tend to be very idealistic, even though they're trying to do something practical mm -hmm. and they're gonna, but they have this idealism that is winnowed out of you over time right. just through the grind of work. Right. And uh, her work is devoted to reminding people and bringing what that, that back is. up. That why, is, yeah, exactly. Why there. Um, now we've talked some about your work on end of life uh, uh, issues, uh, but I'd like to come back to that. Um, what, I, I, knowing you, I would say there's a part of you that's really, I would say, deeply drawn to end of life work. Is that fair? I think I was drawn into it, like I say, by my first experiences in San Francisco. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as you know, there are really, uh, Elemental teaching is going way back, particularly, say, in Buddhism, where acknowledging mortality mm -hmm. is the first step towards understanding almost anything, really, mm -hmm. in life, impermanence. So on that level it is, but I also just... Uh, the, so you talk about reproductive health and end-of-life health. It's the two ends, beginnings and end-of-life, mm -hmm. you know? And these are where people are most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed to me, if I was going to make a contribution in policy and, and care to pick where people are most vulnerable. In mm -hmm. sense. That's it, beautiful. It, it, well, and it also led to uh, a girlfriend at one point saying, God, you sure know a lot about birth and death, but you don't know anything about what happens in between. <laughs> 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 Which is probably true. <laughs> you know, I wanted to, I, I mean, if, I mean, so one of the things that was, and, and I also, I mean, the, the issue that I felt I could, um, well, what I saw so in these early years with, with the HIV patients is that many were choosing their own time of death eventually. Since it was coming anyway, they knew about what medications to use. The physicians and nurses knew. You got somebody hooked up to a morphine drip that you could increase uh, the dose and bring about their end a little bit sooner so they wouldn't suffer so much. And it was, it seemed to me to make sense in terms of the patient autonomy. But again, you know, as many people know, this was illegal everywhere. Euthanasia, it's called physician-aided euthanasia. And we worked a lot on that in terms of, I, I did the first survey of American physicians on that in the United States since, I mean, maybe it had happened in the early 100 years ago, I don't know. But it was big news because when I did this, and it was a good turnout, almost a thousand doctors, it was basically 50-50. This is okay and it should be legalized, right? And people were shocked by that because it was always assumed that doctors was just a no. But everybody knew really in the clinical setting it was much more a gray area. Um, you could say no, but you could still do what it was came to be called terminal sedation. So we actually, I had another working group together and we actually drew up guidelines on how to do this in a safe way to have informed consent to make sure that you had a consult for uh, depression that might have been treatable uh, to you know a number of safeguards and everything. And we published these, a medical journal too. That was, I think, the second time I was on the front page of the New York Times when that came out. And again, this was one of my dad's comments. He said, uh, you know, my aim is always to keep out of the newspapers. <laughs> he goes, 
<laughs> but he said, but I'm proud of you. Oh, you know, nice. and it was the only time he ever said anything like that. Mm. But you know, because I was basically sticking it to the man in a sense, and he was not a not a big fan of the government. You know, um, and what we've seen, of course, now is that state after state has started to legalize or liberalize these laws without any of the concerns that have had. People always bring up the Nazi experience again, slippery slope. It's called that you're going to start having involuntary euthanasia, but with the right safeguards, it doesn't happen. And I had already seen, you know, patient after patient in the early years of the epidemic, they knew exactly, and the docs knew, everybody knew what was going on, but it was, and, and agreed that it was, you know, the end was no, I mean, the goal was no longer to prolong life, it was to minimize suffering. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be in line. So, you know, we're still working on that, and uh, it's, I'm involved in a group, Compassion and Choices, which is kind of the, uh, I think the best, the most dominant kind of, you know, it's pro-choice group at end of life too, but mostly about improving end of life care mm. and treatment. And there's talk about trying to do another initiative, you know, to mm. do California as Oregon and Washington, Montana, you know, Vermont, these mm -hmm. states are doing this now and it, and it works mm. uh, without. And know, actually not a lot of people not a lot do, do it. it. In other you words, know, people want, they, people want to, they want control, they want to know that if exactly. the suffering becomes impossible, they have a way out. But at the end of the day, they rarely exactly. take it. So yeah. my argument there is the irony is, is that by, by making this legally available, right. you prolong life, right. actually. I mean, right. this, is, this is the, the interesting right. thing we found, is that people right. will stick around longer because they aren't freaked out about losing Because they know they can, they can decide yeah. when to go. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your work in... Uh, environmental health and with the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, uh, which, as you know... Let me tell you, can I tell you another story yeah, yeah. first? Please. I just want to tell us one, because we're back to uh, the drug policy. Yeah, yeah. This was just kind of a, this was fascinating to me, because I put on, uh, I worked in drug, you know, I did a lot of things, we put on a national conference on drug education. How do you minimize, you know, do the best drug education? And uh, because none of it's ever really worked, right? If you look at the, the patterns of drug use through, you know, whether it's kids and pot or whatever it is through the years, it has nothing to do with, you know, the just say no policy that came out under Reagan or any of these things. They don't really seem to have any correlation. So all these scientists came. We did a, a nice big conference in San Francisco and all these people came and it was in the paper. And within about a month after that, a uh, newspaper reporter called me and said, did you know, do you know anything about this group called Narconon in the San Francisco schools. And I said, I don't know that much. I've heard of them. I've seen them around. She goes, we're doing an investigation. We think it is actually Scientology in disguise. And I said, that's, inter that's interesting because Narconon, I mean, Narconon, I got this wrong, Narconon. Narconon is Narcotics Anonymous established just like Alcon. But Narconon, that's a different thing. So this woman who's a great uh, education reporter for the Chronicle, Nanette Asimov, who ironically is, you know, related to Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer. And, uh, you know, Scientology, as we know, was founded by a science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard. Um, she did an investigation, and it was uh, front page of the paper. It said, this is a very strongly affiliated with Scientology, and their science is questionable, and uh, something should be done, basically, is what the story was. And the, the next day, the uh, superintendent of schools called me up and said, I remember you did this drug education conference. Would you evaluate the, the Narconon program? It's a public thing. We can't kick them out without a second opinion, medical opinion. I said, sure, I'd love to. So send it all over. came in these big booklets. And uh, I'll appoint a panel of uh, six, the best people I know in addiction medicine. And we'll evaluate it and send you back our opinion. 
And uh, so that being a public, it's the San Francisco Unified School District, it's public, that was a story the next day was, you know, medical society is going to evaluate this. I was suddenly uh, inundated with people and requests and demands for, to meet with me about this. Email, phone, faxes, and people showing up the door bearing big boxes and following me around to meetings I was at that were completely unrelated at other you know, conferences on something else where somebody would come up to me with this, that kind of weird glassy look in their eye and say, are you Steve? We'd like to talk to you. And I said, uh, you know, that's not what this is about. You know, but it, I was being stopped, basically. You know? So we, but we all looked through their documents that came back unanimous that there was a lot of nonsense in there. I mean, just to give an example, one of the things in there is that any drug you ever take in your life is still in you, and the only way to get it out is go to the Narconon program, take a whole lot of niacin and do these sweats. And if you take a whole lot of niacin, anybody who knows this or has done it by mistake, you get what's called a niacin flush. You get a very kind of burning and tingling mm -hmm. system thing. Well, that's reaction to niacin that the... Arcanon people say is all the evil drugs leaching out of your skin. And it's easy to believe that if you feel it, you know, you could believe that. But there was all sorts of things in there that didn't make much sense. So we put that, we sent them a one-page letter that I signed back. And this is, again, this is public. And the great headline the next day in the uh, Chronicle was, Scientology flunks drug test. <laughs> 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 and then they left, you know, they left me alone after I'd already done my evil work for them. But the thing that was interesting is uh, a guy called me up during this, and it was like a month lag time to do this evaluation. A guy called me up who was a military psychiatrist who I'd met at some meeting somewhere, and I didn't, and he said, I don't know if you remember me, I work, you know, and I, I was looking him up as he said, I said, yeah, I, I do, yeah. And he said, have you done something to piss off the Scientologists? <laughs> and I said, well, if you read the paper, maybe so. Why do you ask? And he goes, well, you know, I can't tell you a whole lot, but in, in my line of work, we monitor what's called domestic terrorism. And so it's, uh, you know, uh, animal rights groups and various churches and, you know, all this stuff who, you know, pro I mean, anti-choice groups who are known to be violent. And your name keeps popping up on their on their, uh, you know, what we're surveying. And I said, well, that's great, so uh, should I be worried? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, can you check that out? Should I be worried? Have they, have they hurt people? And he says, I'll get back to you. And he called back within the week and he said, so it turns out that senior Scientologists who have defected and gone public with the whole money scheme have vanished, some of them. And we don't know if they went into witness protection or if they ran away or if they were hurt. So all I can tell you is, you know, look in the backseat of the car before you get in at night. <laughs> and then soon after that, the uh, equivalent of 60 Minutes from Sweden came to, uh, you know, this, this spread. So again, we put in a policy that this is a, not an effective drug education program. It should be looked at around the state and around the country. CMA and AMA adopted this and it was kicked out of school districts all over the country. Um, and what they do, of course, is they offer it for free. But what they're doing is recruiting people in and selling more and more programs and all of that. So and, let me just ask you, the way you tell these stories, first of all, they're funny. But my question is, when this guy called you up and said your name is popping up, you know, and all these people vanish and stuff, <laughs> how do you actually hold that? What, I mean, are you scared? Or what... For example, if it were me, I would be pretty scared. I don't scare all that easily. 
I'm anxious, but I don't scare all that easily. But, but if I knew that some effective organized group might disappear me, yeah. I would be scared. And I'm just curious how you're sort of constructed what what happened? Remember, we had Santa Claus with a gun in my house when I, I was a kid. That. I understand that, but is 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 fear something that yeah. doesn't run genetically in your family or something, or yeah. you know, or I mean, it, just I mean, this wasn't the, when I was chair of the board of Planned Parenthood for the Bay yeah. Area. We actually had to put, and this was during the times when doctors were being shot. Right, I understand. And we had to put into a budget. You know, you talk about. She put it in bulletproof vests into our budget for staff, mm-hmm. and and shoring up the front of mm-hmm. the office with mm-hmm. you know bulletproof glass and all of that. You know, it was something that I've thought about, but I just haven't. I didn't dwell on. I did have to end. You know, I got enough calls during that time from the anti-choice people that I had a doubly unlisted <laughs> phone number, where you have your phone under a fake name, and even that's unlisted. Because they, because they were finding you. This was so, under. But just, just to but come back to the question, I, I fear doesn't seem to be how you respond. Not really. I not really. I think okay. so in that regard. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll come. We can end up on that. I can uh, come back. But it's not. Okay. I was self-conscious about it in yeah. a way. I mean, yeah, I, you know, cautious, but not fearful, really. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's helpful. I mean, I've, I've had a, a, a you know. I've had a couple of times in my life when I've decided to do things that I consciously decided were worth dying for. And in those instances, I wasn't afraid because I just thought about it and decided it was worth dying for. Well, I think with the Narconon thing also, I knew that my role, once I filed the report, I was done and I was no longer of any use to them or, or threat. Right. Except for when I was just going to wind up that one by saying the right. 60 Minutes crew from Sweden came and filmed mm-hmm. talking about this because they found out they were all over the schools yeah, in yeah. Sweden. And, the, and it went back and, you know, you, I could look at it and I saw it online. And a friend of mine who lived in, in Europe sent me an email, and, you know, something about it. I saw you on mm-hmm. 60 Minutes. I see you still don't own a comb. <laughs> <laughs> that was her only comment. <laughs> This is, a, this is a college friend. So. <laughs> so let's talk about the environmental health work. Uh, how long have we been doing the Collaborative on Health and the Environment? When was the founding conference? Uh, well, that started where we took a walk, yeah. you and I, as I say. Um, and you had already thought, of course, a lot about this, mm-hmm. including with Catherine Porter here and, and others, and Ted Shetler, some people here. And uh, the idea was to come up with, you know, a network of people who often might not talk to each other. Scientists, environmental health, doctors, patient groups, and environmentalists mm-hmm. being four main, you know, the green groups. All working on something that might have a shared goal, but who don't necessarily get in the same conferences and room together. So we, I always remember you saying something like, if this works for five years, we'll spin it off into something else and, and move on. But it's been so gratifying in, in, mm-hmm. in various ways that we're still doing it. And um, I mean, I should mention the, the uh, conference call that we did just last week on Fukushima and on the radiation uh, impact and threats to California. I highly recommend it. It's, it's now posted on the what's, website. What's the bottom line on that? Should, should we be worried about the Fukushima I can, radiation? I can tell you that, you know, it was interesting. We had the, our local uh, 
young physician yeah. here, Anna O'Malley here, and I actually was trying to draw her out on asking mm -hmm. that, you know, do you know, so the threats of, the, the concerns have been that there's, it's going to be aerosolized in the air and land here, and then is it in our food, is it in the fish, mm -hmm. et cetera. And uh, she said, you know, making a, a real calculation, and she has young kids, she says, I still eat fish, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's probably better for you than the threat would be the great, you know, the the nuclear physicist we had on, and the uh, doctor, Bob Gould, who's president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, which is an anti-nuke group, so you're not talking about corrupt in terms of that way. They both were pretty reassuring about California. So we can still eat fish. Yeah, and not be worried about being outside or right. you know, it being in the fog right. here. In Japan, of course, it's a different story. Yeah, of course. But, but I think, I mean, so that podcast is up there, and this yeah. is the kind of thing yeah, yeah. we've done. So we, we had a conference at the Medical Society, um, 50 or so people, all these leading figures. This was about 12 years ago? Uh, 2002, I think. So, 2002. Yeah, 12 years ago. Yeah, 12 years ago. Yeah. And uh, kicked off this uh, collaborative, of, which is now you know, near 5,000 people who are involved in this. And uh, kind of, you know, bringing everybody together so they know what you know, some of the best practices are and what the policies are. And education, and it's been one of the most interesting things I've done in my life. Which is saying know. a lot for you. Yeah, along with the cancer help program and a few other things. Yeah. And what's really struck me about it, um, collaborative on health and the environment. Um, Ted Shetler, Catherine Porter, uh, Cheryl Patton, others here have been deeply involved with it. But what's really struck me about it, if you, you know, Ted and I post every day to this thing, probably an average of five to 10 posts a day. Uh, Neil posts to it, you know, a lot of us post to it. Um, and we've got, what, 12, 15 working groups, cancer, breast cancer, learning disabilities, infertility, asthma, uh, obesity, diabetes, autism, EMF, autistic climate. spectrum disorder, climate, pets, you know. So what really strikes me about it is it has to do with how amazingly different people's perceptions of risk are. Because there are these, like, I talk about the different disease tribes. You know, there's the cancer disease tribe, learning disability, the different tribes of people concerned with particular health conditions. But then there are also what I call the vector tribes. That is the tribes who are particularly concerned with our exposure to toxic chemicals or to radiation or to electromagnetic fields, or to something else, you know? And then within the integrative medicine community, there are the different, uh, what do you want to call them? The different schools of medicine slash health promotion. You know, there are the vegans, there are the paleo diet people, there are, you know, all the different, you know, approach the functional medicine people. And so you have all these different tribes. You have the disease tribes, you have the vector tribes, you have the different theories of healing and medicine tribes. And the idea is to create, you know, as we say, science and civility, right, is the motto. A place where people will focus on the science. You can critique the science, but you're not supposed to attack you know, the person, and actually have a dialogue where people can learn from each other. And it's actually astonishingly interesting. You know, just for example, there, there's a, a thing going on about 
does folic acid promote breast cancer that Ted Shetler posted the other day, all right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ted posted it to uh, uh, Che Breast Cancer, so I said, comments welcome. And then I reposted it to Che Integrative Health. Well, on Che Integrative Health, which is where the integrative people meet the science, there are all these questions about, well, which kind of folic acid was it? And is it synthetic folic acid or a natural folic acid? And is it methylated folic acid? And, you know, and suppose they have a something in that, what's the gene, Ted, that get, what? Yeah, it's, it's a gene that metabolizes folic acid. Yeah, what's it called? M-T-H-M. Yeah. I'm leaving one letter out. Yeah, anyway, 23andMe is one of the places that you can get tested that will tell you whether you have the, the gene methylation and so on. Uh, so anyway, there are these fascinating discussions that go on with 5,000 people scattered around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, what the, and to me, the most interesting thing of all really comes back to the book Ted just wrote on why I say it's so important, The Ecology of Breast Cancer. Because here you have this modern epidemic, right? And Ted's conclusion in the book is there is no smoking gun, the equivalent of you know, smoking for lung cancer in this epidemic of breast cancer. But what you have instead is the equivalent of the degradation of an ecological system. That's why he likes the ecological sciences as a paradigm for what's going on with so many of the diseases of our time, of which breast cancer is only one. But you could say the same thing about asthma, where Ted has also done some work with Shea Asthma on this. Or you could talk about autistic spectrum disorders or learning disabilities or infertility or many of the pandemics of our time where there tends not to be a single smoking gun, but rather it's the collective impact of the combination of the changes in diet, exercise, light at night, electromagnetic fields, whatever, you know, we don't even begin to know. But it's the death from a thousand cuts that takes place with ecosystems where an ecosystem degrades and at a certain point may go through an irreversible system change, not because a single thing happened, but because of this. Com so to me, I mean, there are many different lessons that one could take out of the 12 years of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. But for me personally, the most interesting one is what is our response when we realize that this is death from a thousand cuts that is taking place in so many. And what are the implications of that? Because you could say, oh my God, there's nothing we can do. But in fact, if you acknowledge that, that that's what's going on, there are lots of things you can do. At a personal level, it means that any ways that in your own life you can reduce stress and enhance nurturance and resilience, it will help somewhere in your biological system. And the same is true at a community level, like Bolinas or West Marin or California or anything else. That if, for example, you get uh, an athletics program back in schools, let's just take that, because the evidence on fitness is so incredibly strong across so many. You know, if you get fitness back, you can't say exactly which diseases are necessarily going to result, but you know that somewhere in the system you're going to get benefits. And so it just seems to me that 
what I've always tried to do in any field we get into is to seize the intellectual high ground, to find the place where you get the most truth that you can get about the implications of the science. And if you find that place and are willing to say it clearly and out loud, that you then tend to see both the, the, the challenging implications but also the potentially positive implications. Anyway, I'm just you curious. See, see why I reviewed his book so I could, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, that's part, that's why yeah. we, it's so important to get all these people together exactly. who normally don't interact. Exactly. But, you know, some of the, what, what runs through a lot of this, and, and Ted and I, Ted's a, you know, has mentioned he's a big thinker of the big picture, the ecological, and we wrote a little article just in this last year about GMOs, for example, and, you know, the point being not that the, the science behind them, what the risk and the, the impacts are, is not good. We don't really know, but that it's a, it's a technological advance that helps to shore up an unsustainable system of agriculture, and, and there's a lot of these out there in the world. This right. is what we're doing. And, you know, just this same Sunday in the, it was either Wall Street Journal or New York Times, the Gates, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates wrote a, a very inspiring piece about the world in the sense that, you know, the work that they do in trying to develop the world is going really well. And it's true in, in a lot of ways in terms of economic level and mortality and that foreign aid can be very important in this way. And they're inspiring people that they do this. They do wonderful work. But nowhere in that article was there any mention of the long-term effects of sustainability, of, you know, where is all the water, for example, going to come from? And how are these impacts going to be? We've got collapsing fisheries all over. And, uh, you know, how is this going to be grown over the long term? Because when, you know, you end up with, we're, we're looking at 10 billion people on the planet, you know, in this century by most estimates. And, you know, this is what I've looked at since, again, undergraduate, since... Uh, Garrett Hardin, and I was, you know, I brought this little, the pocket version of Turtle Island. This is a book I read, Gary Snyder's poems, but it really, what it had in the back, and I read this in, in college too, was some essays called Four Changes, and, it, and there was just, I read one thing, it said, situation is there are now too many human beings. The goal would be half of the present world population or less. You know, he's probably right. It's the only way it's going to work is to have some kind of, you know, down on the curve over time. And the real question mm -hmm. is, is that going to be chaotic and painful and disastrous? Or is it going to be in a more natural way where we actually recognize these mm -hmm. limits? Because we haven't even mentioned the hugest, you know, what thing in the world, which is the climate change issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, James Hansen, the leading uh, climate scientist, he says, this is a giant meteor heading towards Earth. You know, what are we going to do, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's, the impacts are so broad. And so you've talked, and you know, one of the quotes I've gotten you from Havel has always been, when you look at this big picture, and it's so, it's almost like the question you asked me about fear, you know? Mm -hmm. The future of the world, in many ways, is really threatening and really grim. And so how do you live with that, and how do you make, try to make some contribution that mm -hmm. may, you know, if you want to get Buddhist about it again, what the ultimate goal is, lessen suffering in the world mm -hmm. in some way or another. And, you know, that's, it's a, it's a tough path to walk, but there are a lot of people who do it, you know. You're listening to a conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. So one of the ways you address lessening, suf less lessening suffering, I think, is your interest in music. And I actually know very little about your interest in music. <laughs> Tell me about it. Well, it's just fair. You know, you know, you grow up 
60s and 70s, you're into music, you know what I mean? It was right. around, and it was such a big deal back then, and I, I think of now the fragmentation of music, you know, but back then, and I'm looking around, I know there's an age group, when a band you really like, and there was something, when they had a new record out, everybody had it. Everybody heard it, and it was a bonding thing. Everybody knew, you know, the newest album by whoever, whether it was, you know, Beatles or Stones or Grateful Dead or whoever it was, you know. For me, it was, you know, I got really into reggae early on. It was Bob Marley and all that stuff, you know. And I did the same thing I always did. I just would write up reviews of something and send it in, and people would publish it. And next thing I knew, I had a column, and I went on and on. Actually uh, interviewed Bob Marley in college, you know, and... And uh, it was just fascinating, and it was a way really to get into shows for free and get a lot of cheap music sent to me, you know, over the years. And that worked. You know, I had a whole room of trying to sort out through the records and CDs, you know. But I just always found it, you know, I just always liked it, of course, but um, it was always fascinating to me, you know, it became world music for me because it was a way to almost to travel without traveling, you know, to find music from around the world. And I did get some great trips out of it, too, around the world, too. But... Um, I had an interesting, uh, wrote a, an essay once um, that was basically, the harder the life, the more exuberant the music. Mm-hmm. So when I looked around at places in Latin America, and Haiti, for example, and Central Africa, these cultures developed the most exuberant dance music of any place where they also had the, the hardest grind of a life, you know? And why is that? And the other kind of theory that I wrote about once was the natural history of any given kind of music. Uh, you know, that there's a, a, new, a new form of music that comes up and evolves over time and peaks in terms of its quality and its popularity and how great it is. And then it just kind of becomes something that goes on and on, you know, from then on. And so why did all these types of music peak in the 60s and 70s and 80s maybe? If, I mean, if you look at rock and roll, a lot of people would say that what's happened since then has really been a shadow and, you know, inspired by what happened back then. It's certainly true with, say, uh, salsa music. Latin music peaked in the 70s by any standard. Reggae music, you could say the same thing. 70s, early 80s, and then it became something else. Um, Funk music, American funk music and soul, Motown, you know. Uh, Hip-hop peaked probably in the early 80s, I would say, you know, and a lot of the experts in these things would agree with this, you know. It's not just me and my tastes, you know, that I'm outmoded. You know, in that respect, electronic music, dance music, people would say maybe late 90s, early 2000s. And then it becomes kind of stale in a way where people are still trying to create something. And then something else comes along that's new. But why is it that there's this, you know, this natural history? In Africa, they had, you know, Congolese dance music and of Central Africa and Afrobeat in West Africa, Fela Kuti and all these ones. There was nothing like them afterwards that was that fresh and that amazing and that new and that inspiring country music I don't know there's somebody here who might be able to say but most people would say 60s 70s you know I don't know I mean um, folk you know who knows <laughs> we've got people some people here who would know but um, you know so I just always thought it fascinating to not only just to enjoy it on the artistic level but you know I would get a little bit academic about it as well mm-hmm. you know interesting so the last uh, thing we've saved the best for last <clears throat> You are a, as you put it, a sometime editor of the Bolinas Hearsay News. <laughs> which, which for somebody who doesn't live in Bolinas full time is a, a notable honor. I mean, that, that the community trusts you with editing its most yeah, some do. august communications <laughs> network is, is quite an honor. 
for those who, who, who don't know the Bolinos Hearsay News, how would you describe it? Well, the, fo the founder is here, um, and he actually this morning when I ran into him said, uh, I see you're going to justify your life this afternoon. <laughs> Said, I'm going to try, but but the way this it happened. This is Michael Michael Rafferty, Rafferty here, yeah. and also a former a common wheeler here. Yeah, but the way it happened for me was, um, you know, I was hanging out here and, and even uh, you know staying here at times, and um, I started contributing some uh, pieces at times. But then I went to I wanted to do a, uh, a writing workshop with another one of my mentors here, Joanne Kiger, who's here in the back, a famed poet. And she had been the editor uh, for many, many years of the Wednesday Hearsay News. And I figured, cool, I can sign up for this afternoon writing project, and we're really just going to sit around and drink wine and talk about whatever, you know. But it turned out it was actually a really demanding course that she does. She assigns writing to you and so forth. And uh, we became good friends. And uh, over time... I would do more and, you know, she would gone a couple times and I'd step in and do it for her. And then she said one time, probably about 2000, 2001, said, I'm going to Mexico for a month. Would you do the paper while I'm gone? And so here I am still doing it. And I've since learned that this is the trick. You, you, because, because we've got, and so for the next dozen years, I was the junior editor and, you know, I was getting too old to be junior anything. So I conned, there's a guy, Jeff here, who's now doing Fridays and very well. I said, you want to try the, doing the Friday paper? You know, we've talked, because we talked it over with some of the other editors and seemed like the great guy. So, you know, it's just this great institution and there's not, you know, I don't know, there's no communities that have this. I mean, newspapers in around the country are dying out, right? For lack of uh, advertising revenue and uh, in general. Uh, and I gotta and, say, while we're talking about the hearsay news, that, you know, <laughs> uh, Michael Rafferty is one of my heroes in Bolinos mm -hmm. by any standard, you know, just a true, authentic, homegrown genius who started the hearsay news working behind the butcher counter uh, in uh, Bolinos and uh, also started the, the fault line, uh, what is it, college of very higher... Institute. The fault line institute of very higher education, which, which was actually a precursor of the new school. You also started a radio station here. Uh, and your, a bookshop. And a bookstore of astonishing value to the community. He's also a filmmaker who made a film called Carol is Very Fond of Her Dogs, among other things. <laughs> He's written two novels, um, and he is a painter of considerable local renown who charges by the hour for his paintings. <laughs> which, uh, but truly, um, Michael Rafferty, I just shout out of acknowledgement of this astonishingly talented human being who, who contributes so much to this community and the hearsay news is one of us. Well, more than once I've been in the bookstore where somebody yeah. has been in there from out of town and they're looking around with some money and they're handing a book and say, what do, who do I pay? And I said, "There's you just put it in there. It's an honor system and it's always, that is so cool. <laughs> Actually, Bill Clinton once yeah, came yeah. shopping there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also you mentioned Joanne Kiger. I, I once tried an experiment. You know, the Bolinas Library has a whole shelf devoted to Bolinas poets. 
So I went in one day and kind of wiped out the whole shelf and took them all home and just read through them. And I have to say that Joanne Kiger is by far one of the best poets that have come out of Bolinas. You know, just an astonishingly gifted poet. And uh, I think that the record will show that over time. And, well, uh, we did a, I did, we did a nice interview and a profile for the... Yeah. West Marin Review a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and it, you know it was very easy to find a lot of other yeah. astonishing poets who said something like that. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was just extraordinary work. And now you know I'm, she's going to be mad at me after this for even saying that kind of thing. Yeah, well, we'll both deal with it. That's just how it is. <laughs> so, Steve, I want to open up uh, this for questions, but before I do, any. What have, what have you learned on this journey? What, uh, you know, you've worked on HIV, antibiotics, uh, addiction, medical ethics, reproductive health, end of life issues, environmental health. You've done book criticism, music criticism. You've edited the Hearsay News. You also walk to work. I've learned three and a half miles each day, uh, each way, uh, when, uh, uh, when you're uh, in the city. Uh, you are a well-known dog lover. Shuggy and Buddy have been common real mascots. You're a founder of the Surfers Medical Association. We don't have to dwell on that, but that's another of your many, you know, just so many things. I could go on and on about the things you haven't mentioned. Uh, but as you sort of look forward and look back at this point, um, what have you learned from the journey? Well, um it's very interesting because just yesterday, an old friend called me up and said, oh, I was planning to come out your talk. I can't do it. And he's a prominent shrink in the city, mm-hmm. UCSF. You know, um, pres- he's been president of the Medical Society. Interesting guy. We have a lot of, he's, he's pretty conservative, actually. Mm-hmm. We haven't had a lot of debates through the years, but a really nice mm-hmm. guy. He's got an office mm-hmm. in Mill Valley, too. And uh, I said, you know, I remember... He said, I read your bio, the thing that was online or something. Mm. He goes, I didn't know that stuff about you, you know. And I said, well, Steve, remember, his name is Steve, too. I said, remember, you told me about something called imposter syndrome once. Mm. And this is actually a diagnosis where a person (laughs) thinks that they aren't really who they are and that there's something else out there, you know. What is this, you know? Why am I here and what am I, you know, do I deserve to be here? And I said, well, you know, this is something I've had for whatever reason, insecurities about upbringing that when I'd be up and doing a talk to a thousand people at some medical meeting, I'm thinking, this isn't really me, this is something else is going on. And uh, so Steve, he said, listen, he goes, I actually did some research on this and I actually have talked with Irv Yalom, who's a famous Stanford psychiatrist who does a lot of research. And he researched this and he said, eight out of 10 high achievers feel in danger of being unmasked and exposed to being inferior to others in the group and somewhat unworthy to be in such distinguished company. I said, yeah, that's, that sounds right, you know? <laughs> you know? And then he said, but remember, so many good human efforts are at least partly driven by attempts to compensate for those kind of feelings. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what I, you know, in some ways I learned, you know, we come back to this big picture of the world being in great peril and great danger, and you know you're not going to fix it, you know, in one fell swoop. But you can kind of chip away, uh, in some way, and try to you know, at least make a contribution. Mm-hmm. And to have, to have, 
both interesting work that also maybe sometimes make a contribution is such a privilege, yes. you know, because the vast majority of jobs and careers is about making a living, and there's no, mm -hmm. you know, that's necessity. It's not to denigrate it in any mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. but to be able to find a way to to do well by doing good is, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I just feel very privileged. And so a lot of it is in meeting some of the people here who I've been able to to do things with mm -hmm. um, as yeah. well. And I don't even remember who said it, but somebody said, everybody engaged in the act of changing the world is delusional on some level. <laughs> and some t in some small percentage of the time, the delusion becomes reality. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a lovely So line? you kind of live for that yeah. time when that happens and for the people that you, that you work with. And I, I'll just say too, I mean, I, I consider myself in some ways kind of a behind the scenes person, so I was kind of hoping and counting on that it was gonna be you and me talking and making this recording and nobody would be here, but thank you all for, for coming <laughs> on a Wednesday afternoon, you know. Let me just open this up for any comments. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I have two questions. Yeah. Uh, one, is the, one is, what is the ethicality of a person who is mentally ill and taken into uh, a facility that uh, allows them, if they're an adult, to sign out whether they're well or not. What's the ethicality of that, and who the hell proposed that in the first place, and who signed off on it? Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so the question was, uh, you know, I mean, this is a, a, an informed consent issue, but in terms of mental illness, when you have a patient who is institutionalized and can sign themselves out when they are not even cogent, right? I mean, it's a very complicated issue, obviously, but basically we had a big, in California, a huge deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill in the 1960s when Reagan was governor. And to, you know, give him fair, the other side of it is a lot of it was driven by this movement to give patients control over their life. A lot of it was just driven by money, well, you know? I, you know yeah. Uh, I know from personal experience. Right. So people are out who should be taken care of inside, but the facilities and the money is not there to do it. So it's unethical. It's also the system we live in. I'm glad in. you said that. It is unethical. Oh, I think it's clearly unethical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of debate. There's actually a, a, a sub-debate about this. There's a law passed called Laura's Law from somebody who was murdered by a, a mentally ill person and can you self, you, you can only take somebody, it's called a 5150, you can put somebody under treatment f if they're a danger to self or others, but you can't hold them for a long time often. Yeah. Seven yeah. Days. Give me a break. Yeah. Second question, why keep people alive? Second question is why keep people alive? Yeah. I would say only if they want to be. No, no, no. I'm talking about Warren Buffett and Melinda Gates. Oh, okay. Everybody <laughs> trying to, to, to keep people alive when we know uh, by 2025, we're going to have 8 billion people, and we can't feed them. There's not enough arable land. There's not enough clean water. Right. Uh, we've got global warming. So why keep more and more people alive when it's yeah. not sustainable in an yeah. ecological and, sense? Yeah. Uh, why get rid of malaria, for example, when you're going to have wars? People are going to go where food is. It's easier to go for or as easy to go where food is than take a bullet. Mm -hmm. So they're going to move. 
Okay, if you can just hold that. I, I want to get to a bunch of people. So I think you made your second yeah, point. Yeah, I don't know. It's just yeah, yeah. No, I don't. You know, it's a it's a huge philosophical question you're asking um, that is debated. Peter Singer being the primary ethicist who talks about these kinds of issues, you know, about limits and so forth. And you know, nature is going to do a lot of this for us, I believe, and everything. But we try to lessen suffering. Well, mm -hmm. it, yeah. <laughs> you had a question here. Yeah. Do you think community mental health would have worked if it had been funded at the time all the deinstitutionalization would have, at the time the deinstitutionalization mm. happened? Would community mental health work? I, you know, I don't know the answer to that, really. I mean, I think it would have helped a lot of people, certainly. I mean, it would have, it would have uh, avoided some of the homeless problem that we've had. We've been plagued with around the country for a couple decades now since then, but... It takes a huge commitment. And sort of a, a related question about consent. Thank you for being clear on, on where it is in terms of uh, terminal sedation for people who are able to make that decision. Where is that process in terms of dementia? Mm. Well, you want, in terms of the right to die you're talking about, um, you know, you one of the safety criteria that are in all of the laws and the policy uh, document that we wrote that some of them are modeled on was that you needed to be, you know, you had to have uh, competence to make these decisions. So you ended up with this irony where people who didn't have competence for due to mental illness or whatever it was did not have the right to make that choice. And so at this point, is there some way of establishing that, that now, right now, when I'm competent, I can say, when I get to this point, I do not want to be here? Or yes. is that... So advanced directives are what you need, and there are all kinds in, uh, that are out there and that, that establish your wishes the best you can in a legal sense and, and uh, lay out what kind of treatments even, you know, that you want, so... Well, but the problem with dementia, of course, is not a matter of treatment. Yeah. No, but I mean, you can put these out ahead of time. So you need a terminal diagnosis to have, excuse me, the, the right to die anyway, even under these laws as passed in other states. Dementia itself is not one. So there's that cash 22 in a sense, yes. Other questions or comments? Just any more? Yes. Um, I don't know if you think this is a big medical issue, but Diane Beeson's um, and other women's work with the commodification of Poor women buying their eggs, mm. which is a harmful extraction process for them that they're not informed about, so they sell their eggs yeah. as college students. And right. then also buying people's organs around the world. Right. I think that sounds like a huge medical mm. issue. Oh, it's, of yeah, commodification of organs and eggs. Yes. No, it is, it's, it definitely is a big issue. And again, the, a Nobel Prize winner in economics just had a piece in the Times last week about that we should allow compensation and trade in organs because we'll get a lot more of them. You know, it's an argument that can be made, you know. And this was out, ruled out for blood donation a long time ago because you get blood that you don't want. It's people who are desperate for money, obviously, and you'll get less. Um, we, well, so yeah, it's a huge issue. If you look at, like, say, the Stanford Alumni Magazine, it has ads in there. If you're blonde and 6'2 and have a 4.0 GPA, we will give you $50,000 for your eggs, you know, uh, things like that. So it's out there. And uh, it's being discussed a lot, and so it's one of these like free market versus you know rational policy uh, issues. Steve Heilig, thank you for being with us at the New School. 
Thank you, and thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.